Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ready for the earworm of the century. Hell yeah, I am. Yeah, because that's what we're basing this entire episode on. Of course. Okay, here it comes. Despacito. <laughs> Come on. I don't know the song. Oh. Really? I don't. You've never heard that song? I've heard it in bodegas. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it in Ubers here and there. I totally bombed. <laughs> It's totally bombed. And not only that, I've probably managed to piss off thousands of people. <laughs> Tens of thousands. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. And I'm Carolina Hidalgo. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you start with that terrible song? Because it's the earworm of the century. <laughs> We're not in that century. We're not in this century. Oh, that's right. We're in a different century. <laughs> song we're talking about today is the 20th century. We're talking about something totally different. We're talking about Surfing Bird, as promised. Yes. Whether yes. you wanted it or not. No one asked for it. <laughs> but we decided to do it. We decided to do it because the song, it has a fascinating history. Let, let's just fucking, let's hop right into it. A Surfing Bird occupies a funny space in the history of rock and roll. While it is ostensibly a surf rock song, it actually has none of the hallmarks of surf rock. See, while most surf rock is typified by songs featuring tight guitar and heavy reverb that's 99 times out of 100 instrumental, Surfing Bird is a manic mess of near-blown-out vocals that completely drowns out the guitar. The reason behind this is that the band who first recorded the version we know and the version that a lot of punk bands have covered, the Trashmen, they were still kind of new to surf and were in fact a bunch of dudes from Minnesota whose only experience with a surfboard nearly resulted in the death of one member. Nearly. Almost one. <laughs> really, Surfing Bird is one of those unique songs that, through a filtering process that started with an R&B group in California and ended in the Twin Cities, became a microcosm of a chaotic, largely accidental alchemy of 20th century rock music. Now, we're not saying this song started any revolutions, <laughs> but to understand how rock music evolved throughout the 60s into the decades beyond, a damn good place to start is Surfin' Bird. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well, everybody's heard about the bird. Bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. The bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Well, the bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Well, the bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, the bird, bird, bird. Well, the bird is a winner. Well, the bird, bird. The bird's a winner. Well, don't you know about the bird? Well, everybody knows that the bird is a winner. Well, the bird. like the biggest song of the year it was like the biggest earworm despacito just, you're still talking about despacito trying to explain a joke because that is what makes a joke funny apparently. nope we're talking about surfing birds yes. now that's a fucking earworm for you it's an earworm that is worthy of being an earworm <laughs> yeah it's a fucking great song it's what 15 words Overall, like, I mean, it's and most of the words are nonsense. Uh, and, you know, this was a song that, you know, a lot of people call the Trashmen like the first garage rock band. They didn't even fucking know what the hell garage rock was. They didn't know anything. They were just trying to make music. That's why they were the first ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they're making right now. That's a good argument. Well, surprisingly, there is actually a whole book about the history of 60s Minnesota rock and roll called Everybody's Heard About the Bird. It's by Rick Shevchik, and it's actually a pretty interesting read if you're interested in the development of local scenes, and it happens to be our source today. Now, the band who made Surfing Bird a hit, the Trashmen, were a somewhat ragtag group of musicians who had come together after playing with various other groups on their way to becoming a unit. Yeah, so, I mean, they had to get to that point, right? So we could start with Dal Winslow and Steve War. They were high school friends. They, they actually met in homeroom class, which is like, you know, when they take roll call and they put the kids in alphabetically and things like that. So they're like, yeah, all our friends were W friends. Like last names were, you know, like we had that too at school at one point. Of course. And just so everyone knows, this is absolutely going to be the most white bread story we're going to tell this entire series. Of course. <laughs> we're going to say Nola. <laughs> so. It's highly interesting, but it's, it's very like, well, yeah, you know, we... I met Steve because we were both in the same homeroom, you see, because there's, you know, it's a W. We're both W's, so that's, you know, that's how we met. <laughs> that's how Steve and Dahl met. That's true. Dal being the guitarist and Steve being the drummer. And Dal, like, he had his acoustic guitar, and he's like, yeah, we should play some rock music. And Steve is like, no, 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 no. You need uh, an electric guitar. Yeah. Like one that Buddy Holly plays. That way we can play some good rock music. And so they would practice together in their basement and just play along to records. Yeah, playing a Stratocaster. That was that was the guitar that Buddy Holly made famous. Yeah, so they wanted to be in a band, in a rock and roll band. So they came up with Jerry Wing and the Citations. God, what an awful name. Yeah, I know. It didn't I don't think it lasted very, very long. Yeah. But then they met Tony Andreasen. Now Tony, he was a lead guitarist because just like Dal and Steve would do, Tony would play around town at dances and roller rinks and church suppers. You know, wherever he could like play for a few dollars. What? Yeah. I'm at the roller rink on Friday. <laughs> uh, church supper's on Saturday. You'd think it'd be on Sunday, but they do it on Saturday to keep the kids out of the roller rink that they're going to on Friday. <laughs> I once played at a church supper. Really? Well, stand-up comedy, obviously. I, 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 it was a, They call them spaghetti dinners. Uh, yeah, no, we had spaghetti dinners down south, too, in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, it's the worst fucking spaghetti you ever had in your life. I liked mine. Well, you My probably did it in New spaghetti. Jersey. Yeah, it was New Jersey. <laughs> I'm talking Texas spaghetti. <laughs> All right. So, yes, back then there was like networks of local musicians, of course, where they call each other up. And it was mostly high school kids or really young guys because they just needed someone who could play for a night for seven dollars yeah for all these like little shows that they would put together so like let's say like if somebody like steve got a gig together and they booked him for a roller rink he would call up guys and book them and then they would just rehearse together like one night and just like put a list of songs that they they that they knew and then they would put together and then they would do the show so that's how the three of them like met each other like steve dell and tony they were around that network and they're like hey i like tony yeah me too let's bring them together so the three of them would rehearse in dal's basement or sometimes in tony's garage where they came up with like early names like the string kings Ugh. yeah you're right <laughs> or what about the ravons the ravons how is it spelled like Ravons. <laughs> Did it look like Ravons? Yes, it looks like Ravons or Ravens. Or it, it just, there was actually a band called the Ravons. <laughs> um, of course, that's a, of course, a Buddy Holly reference, Ravon and all that. Yeah. yeah. And pretty soon, the three of them, Steve, Dahl, and Tony, they joined Jim Thaxter's band. So Jim Thaxter and the Travelers. So they were the Travelers. Yeah, and they actually ended up recording something. Let's listen to a song from Jim Thaxter and the Travelers. It's actually pretty fucking good. It's called Cyclone. Cyclone. It was spelled wrong in the in the LP. Wow, and it's still spelled wrong on Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, very much of the time, you know. There was just, that's the amazing thing to think about is that you know those songs, that style that we know. There were hundreds upon, if not thousands, of musicians all doing that same shit, just trying to figure it out. They're all just working guys, because for them, this is a job. You know, like they're going out, they're trying to make money. Like they love doing it, of course. Well, they're in high school yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, but it's like this like, is their like summer job. Yeah, yeah, gas money. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, after they kind after they recorded that. The band split up. Yeah, because Jim Thaxter was an asshole. No, well, he was he was difficult, but his dad was the bigger asshole. Yeah. Jim Th Thaxter Sr., I think. Uh, he was like the manager of the band, and he was very, like, pushy and very difficult. Like, he would book gigs at the last minute, like, call him up and say, hey, there's a gig tonight. Be there. And the guys would be like, oh, come on, I have a hot date or a big test tomorrow or something. Which, you know what? That happened to Dell. Jim's dad called him up, called up Dell and said, hey, we're playing at a roller rink tonight. Uh, you better get there. And Dell said, no, I'm not breaking my hot date again. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go on my date. And so just the band went on without Dell. They, they probably got someone else. And then Dell, to be an asshole, shows up to the roller rink with his date. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when Jim Thaxter's dad was just like, you're fired. He yeah. just fired him on the spot. And right there, Steve and Tony just got up and said, then we quit too. And they all walked out being like, we're going to just start our own band. Let's just get out of What happened though, when they were about to do that, Tony joined the Army Reserves. Uh. 
Yeah, I mean, because back then they're they're trying to get out of the draft. Well, it's 1962. It's 1961. It's 1961. Okay, yeah, yeah. Things are starting to heat up a little bit. Yeah, this is when. Uh, Kennedy, when JFK, he's he's mobilizing thousands, tens of thousands of people to Vietnam. And so a lot of times people would do things like act crazy, like Iggy like, Pop. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Steve, uh, he got married young because Kennedy said he wasn't going to bring any married men to Vietnam or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> got divorced. Of course. <laughs> yeah, why'd you get married? To avoid the draft. <laughs> <laughs> She's fine. She'll do until the war's over. Oh, God. <laughs> Take my wife, please. <laughs> so, so Tony got in the Army Reserves, and the funny thing is that Jim Thaxter Jr. went with him. So they're like, hey, remember that time that I quit your band and spoke, <laughs> stood up to your dad? Anyway, we're going to spend all this time at training camp together. <laughs> and then Tony and Jim were actually given orders to go to Vietnam. Fuck. Yeah, they went all the way to the airport, and then at the last minute, they were given orders to stand down. <laughs> oh, God, I couldn't even imagine the, the stress of that. <laughs> and they're like, oh, we get to go home now. <laughs> so eventually, Tony got out of the reserves, and the three of them got back together, finally. And and they got a new bass player, because they were like, okay, we got two guitars and one drummer, and we need a bass player. So they got this guy named Don Woody. It's the most dive bar owner name ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like Don Woody manages our new bar, Georgie's. (laughs) That's going to be our bar. When we open a bar one day, we're going to call it Georgie's, and it's going to be managed by Don Woody. And one day I'm going to call it Woody's. (laughs) They don't know how to run a bar. (laughs) And, of course, you know, it's funny that, yeah, all these guys uh, avoided Vietnam, and yet Surf and Bird uh, gained a resurgence by being used in the second best movie about Vietnam, Full Metal Jacket. Yes. Best being Apocalypse Now, of course. Yeah, of course. It's the first one. It's the the best movie probably ever. My favorite movie. Yeah. Now, once the group began to coalesce, it became obvious that they'd need a name with a hook. So they looked through their record collection and came across a single called Trash Man's Blues by a songwriter from Wichita, Kansas named Tony Kyrae. Hey, Mr. Trash Man. interesting voice on Tony Kyrae. And yeah. by the way, that uh, single was reissued by who else but Norton Records. Oh, <laughs> hey. Good job there. Hell yeah. And so they were like, yeah, fuck it, the Trashman, that's us. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, they came up with that name and because they're like, it's an unforgettable name. No yeah. one's going to ever forget that name. Because a lot of bands back then were like, Johnny and the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> so like, let's just go with something like simple and easy and really memorable. And even though a lot of people thought that was a terrible idea, I mean... 
<laughs> everyone, when they heard the trashman, everyone went, oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. No, that's awful. That's terrible. That's the worst name I ever heard. Oh. <laughs> and then. <laughs> that was the reaction the trashman would get a lot with their music, their name. Everyone, people just going, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's punk rock. Hell yeah, it is. So their first gig was August 1962 at a teen dance in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. But after a few gigs, Don Woody quit. I'm going to start my own bar called Woody's. <laughs> yeah, it was partly because of the name. He was like, I can't be in a band called The Trash Men. Yeah. <laughs> and he was going to join his brother's band. He was like, yeah, the Star Tones. Now yeah. they're happening. You guys with your <laughs> shitty band name, that's not happening. Now, the, yeah, the Star Tones. That's where, the, that's where we're going to hit nationwide, buddy. There you go. So The Trash Men went through a few bases here and there until some... Until someone suggested Bob Reed. He was a bassist who had, like, band experience, and he played tuba in his high school marching band. I just wanted to add that, (laughs) because I've never met or heard anyone who played tuba in their marching band. My friend Dusty, he played tuba. Well, that's cool, (laughs) because I think it takes, like, a... Like a, a, a different kind of person, like an original kind of person, and be like, I'll fucking do the tuba. Absolutely, yeah. Dusty was the type of guy that'd be like, uh, actually, it's a sousaphone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Hell uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Great guy. Yeah. So Bob came in to audition with the guys, and they played really well together. So he's like, yeah, man, I'm totally down. It's a good fit. What's the name of your band? Oh, yeah, we're called the Trashmen. <laughs> Are you shitting me? <laughs> That was his exact words. He left. <laughs> they had to call him up and ask him, come on, can you please join the trash man? <laughs> and he's just like, okay, well, I guess. I mean, you guys were really fun to play with. I mean, I guess in 1962, calling your band the trash man was like the equivalent of calling your band now like piss cum fuck bucket. Like, it's <laughs> really? <laughs> that is an equivalent. That is quite. But, but just people going like. Side by side. Like, oh. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to go to that show. No, no, no. It's the trash, man. Yeah. It's. Yeah, things were people were much more sensitive about things back then, and they had and they also had no idea what worked and what didn't, you know, because everybody else there were yeah the bit it was Johnny and the somebody else's like Johnny and the other guys it was all the, the that's who was making hits so something different people reacted badly to it they reacted very badly to anything different or strange, uh, but the Trashmen they just fucking kept going forward, so once Bob was in the band. The Trashmen took the regular route of an American rock band in the early 60s, and then they started, like everyone else, playing the teen dances and the roller rinks, and they usually used a set list comprised of the hits of the day. But the problem the Trashmen had was that the most popular songs were also very short, because there was a belief that a song longer than two and a half minutes wouldn't work on the radio. And this is another way that rock and roll evolved all on its own through necessity. Now, I suppose the radio rule had a sort of logic to it, but it was terrible for the dances the Trashmen were playing because the songs were all over way too quickly. Kids want to dance with each other longer than two and a half minutes at a time. So the Trashmen began doing their own versions, stretching two and a half minute long songs like this one from Jerry Lee Lewis into five minutes. Not I hate you to love me, let's police don't tease. If I can hold you, then let me squeeze. My heart goes round and round. My love comes a tumble and You leave me. Breathless. Well, I shake all over, and you know why. I'm sure it's love, honey, that's no lie. 
Cause when you call my name You know I burn like a wood in flame You leave me Now, right from the beginning, the Trashmen were a local hit, which enabled them to play such exotic locations as Hatfield, New Munich, and St. Cloud. Ooh, bring out the map. <laughs> Let's put on the pins. <laughs> but, I mean, this is actually pretty good for a band in the early 60s because these guys, they were making cash doing what they loved. But even though the Trashmen were doing their own thing when it came to covering other people's music, they felt like they could do more. So in November of 1962, three out of the four trash men drove to California to check out the burgeoning surf rock scene. Yeah, Steve, Tony, and Dell. They went out without Bob because he was married and he had a baby. So yeah. he's like, now I got to pay rent. Yeah. But so they got to California and the first thing they wanted to do was hit the waves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the three of them, they rented some longboards. Yeah, no need for any intro lessons. Thank you. No, no, thank you very much. How hard can it be? And, of course, Tony immediately got wiped out. Yeah. Like, immediately. like Dangerously he, wiped out. Yes. That's the thing. He, like, washed ashore like a log. <laughs> like, a, like a weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> and then, like, all the other surfers, like, run around. It's like, you idiots. Like, the waves are too high. Yeah. We're not even out there. You fucking kill yourself. The surfers are like, okay, you know what? We can help you. We, we can show you how to do it once it calms down a little bit. And the guys were like, nah, actually, I think we're just going to buy some records. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to go uh, check out the Shantae's. Uh, yeah. I hear they're pretty good. And they did. Like, they heard a lot of great surf music. They like, like, Miserloo. Mm-hmm. And they just brought back a lot of Dick Dale records and went back to Minnesota. And they're like, we should be a surf band. Hell yeah. In Minnesota. <laughs> well, they just love the music. I mean, I fucking, I adore surf music. I have been surfing exactly once, and the only thing I got out of it was raw fucking nipples. (laughs) It was was awful. (laughs) I never want to surf again for as long as I live. So, going off their newfound infatuation with surf, the Trashmen returned to Minnesota to join the ranks of a surprisingly large number of landlocked surf rock bands. In fact, some of these bands would become some of the most respected names in the surf world. In Clovis, New Mexico, one of the most landlocked places in America, you had the Fireballs, who came across the surf sound independently of California in 1959, with Latin-influenced tracks like Vaquero. that latin influence in it you know it's later heard and guys like mark rabot who was tom who was the guitarist for tom waits for like years and years and years then out of boulder colorado you had the astronauts 
who took a song named Baja, written by Lee Hazelwood. Which mm. I didn't know. Lee Hazelwood, same guy wrote like These Boots Are Made For Walking, worked with Link Ray a ton. The astronauts took that song and became terribly famous in Japan off the strength of that single. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Barely made the charts in America, but in Japan, uh, the astronauts were mobbed on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, good for them. Yeah, good for them. So much better because their first band name, I think, was called the. the, They they were first called the Stormtroopers. (laughs) (laughs) So, but they figured out they had to change that. (laughs) (laughs) Which is which is a good move. That was a good move. Very good move. Very good move. And while this next group wasn't landlocked, Brooklyn is still an unlikely origin point for what is quite possibly the sweetest and maybe the most popular of all surf rock tunes. At Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny. Oh, yes. We both had to do it. <laughs> had no choice. And no, you'd never have a choice. No matter where it's playing or wherever you are, whatever you're doing. You had a fucking funeral. You still got to fucking scream, Richie. Especially at a funeral. <laughs> I mean, I challenge, and I challenge you to find someone who doesn't like that song. Yeah. I don't see how, like, I don't see how anyone couldn't like or even love that song. Like, it's just, I don't know. It it hits something deep within the soul. Like, it's very human. Yeah. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But for the trash men, landlocked in Minnesota, 
the band that inspired the last hit of the surf era did come from California. They were a touring band called the Sorensen Brothers, and they brought a strange medley to Minnesota that changed everything for the trash men. Yes, so the Sorensen Brothers, there's really not that much about them exactly because they just toured a lot for a few years, but it all starts, like, we'll go to the beginning. It all starts with Paul and Dean Sorensen, and they were the oldest of the five Sorensen Brothers. That woman made five brothers. (laughs) Good for her. Hey, my mom made three, so it, you know, it happens. (laughs) And Paul and Dean, they were in a band called The Revels around 1960 to 1962, where they recorded a song originally called Detour, written by Robert Hafner for The Revels, that they they called Comanche. Mm-hmm. And they released the EP in 1961, and pretty soon after that, Paul and Dean left, you know, to start the Sorensen Brothers band with all five brothers. The Revels pretty much split up after that, so they figured, okay, that's the end of that. That's the end of The Revels. Yeah. Then... In 1994, (laughs) a movie called Pulp Fiction came out and became a huge hit. A gigantic hit. And the soundtrack was a huge hit, too. It was. It was a fucking amazing soundtrack. I mean, I had it. I had it, too, yeah. Yeah. It's gone platinum three times in the U.S. Wow. Yes, and and Canada, each. And platinum three times in Europe, Australia. It's insane. Like, it's huge. It's one of the biggest soundtracks of that era, ever. So, one of the Sorensen brothers... You know, he was older. He took his teenage son to go see Pulp Fiction when it came out in the theater since he knew his brother's old band song, Comanche, was in the movie. (laughs) And how old was his son? Fifteen. Okay, all right. Not too bad. Father and son, they just sat in the movie theater waiting for Comanche to come on, and it finally did. Let's play Comanche first to see if any of you out there recognize what scene Comanche's played in. So they got to hear the the song in, in its entirety th- during the bring out the gip butt fucking basement scene. <laughs> the whole song is like, hey, dad, dad, th- there's Uncle Paul and Uncle D- Dean's song. <laughs> Just squirming. Hey, you know what? Same thing happened to my parents because my parents took me to see Pulp Fiction in the theater when I was 12 because my mom was a huge John Travolta fan. <laughs> <laughs> She was so excited about, like, everyone saying, like, this is the return of John Travolta. You're not going to believe how good John Travolta is in this movie. So they're like, okay, yeah, let's let's all go because the nearest movie theater was an hour away in Abilene. So they didn't get a chance to see movies that often. So when they did, they had to take me. And, uh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it changed my fucking life. It's uh, a great for the, movie, For the better. Like, yeah. it was, it's a great fucking movie. But it, it was only... That was only one of two times I've seen someone walk out of a movie, and they walked out long before the butt fucking scene. They walked out. They walked You're out. You're missing it. <laughs> they walked out. They walked out while uh, Christopher Walken was describing the story of putting the watch up his ass. No. Like I think in my it was as, as when he said in my ass. That's when they got up and left. Maybe it was a trigger. Maybe there were vets. We don't know. We don't know. We have no idea. He was definitely the age to be a Vietnam vet. So the guy who wrote the song, Robert Hafner, he sued Miramax 
Yes, he was like, no, I can't believe this is happening. Did he give permission to have the song in the movie? Well, he said it infringed on his copyrights to, to Comanche that he registered two years after the movie came out. <laughs> <laughs> but he's just listed as the composer, and the record company had the copyright and the publishing uh. rights. So it, it's, it was a lot of back and forth. Alec, my, my brother, who, who's a lawyer, sent me a bunch of uh, documents, and it's just like, this, this is too much. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's like but Comanche's gonna be just, it's gonna be the soundtrack to butt fucking for a long time. It's, it's just there. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's actually, it just, it's, it's more of a rape scene. Yeah, it, oh. yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's now part of American cinema. So, back in 1963, <laughs> let's go back to 1963. Uh, the Sorensen brothers, all five of them. Sorensen, Sorensen. Damn it. <laughs> Sorry. Just think that those, remember those five episodes of Friday Night Lights that I made you watch? And there was that one, Matt Sorensen, the guy that, you know, he's the quarterback that, you know, has to, he has to buck up and fight the big bear. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, that's how I'm going to associate that with. Yeah, Sorensen. The Sorensen brothers, all five of them were playing at Woodley's Country Dam in Wisconsin. And that like that was a big place for teenagers to hang out and families and stuff. It was it was huge back then. Well, yeah, because Wisconsin had uh, stronger beer than Minnesota did, and their drinking age was only eighteen. Yeah, so a lot of people in Minnesota would go <laughs> over there. <laughs> so the trash men were also booked that night, and you know the same night as the Sorensen brothers, and they saw them do a medley of songs mm-hmm. that they really liked. Yep, they sure did. Now the medley that the Sorensen brothers played that the trash men heard was. Unbeknownst to the Trashmen, actually a combination of two songs from an R&B group called the Rivingtons. Yeah, they were a California all-black singing group. Uh, they started out as the Sharps, doing like the yells and the hand claps on uh, Dwayne Eddy's Re- Rebel Rouser. Yeah, let's I, see. Now I know all about Dwayne Eddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your, your fucking education of Dwayne Eddy is now complete. Yes. Yeah, let's hear uh, the... Rivington's in Dwayne Eddy's Rebel Rouser. They're in the background, uh, but they make the song. They're the guys that bring this whole song together. Let's listen. That's some good rousing. <laughs> it's the best rousing there's ever been. <laughs> and the Rivingtons, like, honestly, like, a lot of these guys, like, they've been around a while. Yeah. And they finally got a hit in 1962 uh, as the Rivingtons with Papa Um Mau Mau. Yep. And that's one of the two songs that birthed Surf and Bird. I mean, remember, we played this on part one of the Cramps, but let's hear it again. Funniest sound I ever heard. Now, Papa Um Mau Mau was a hit for the Rivingtons. So going off that, the group released another single a couple of months later that was almost identical. Because in those days, people had no idea how hits really worked. 
and they figured if it worked once, it would work twice. And so the Rivingtons followed Papa Um Mau Mau with Mama Um Mau Mau. Arguably a better song. Yeah, yeah. You you could tell, like, they're like, well, we'll just keep trying it again so we can go national. Yeah, I mean, that's because that's, it's much more visceral. Like, you know, Papa Um Mau Mau is, it's somewhat subdued, but that's them going fucking all out. Pedal to the fucking metal. Yeah. Wasn't a hit. No. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't work. So the Rivingtons took the melody and arrangement from their first hit and gave it different lyrics, turning Papa Um Mau Mau into... The bird's the word. Oh, well, now everybody's heard about the bird. The bird, 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 the Since Papa Um Mau Mau and The Bird's the Word were pretty much the same song with different lyrics, it was very easy to smush them together, which is exactly what the Sorensen brothers did. But the Rivingtons weren't even the only R&B artists on the charts at that time releasing bird-themed material. There was also Dee Dee Sharp, she of gravy fame. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dee Dee Sharp's fucking great. She released an attempt to capitalize on the latest dance craze called Do the Bird. Look out! Look out! There's a big bad bird that's a flying about. Come on, baby, do the bird with me. Yeah, the whiskey pony to the bird with me. Come on, baby, fly your hands around. You can even do it sitting down. Do the bird, do the bird. Do the shimmy, shimmy. Do the bird, do the bird. 
think I heard that song or a version of that song in Hairspray. Probably. Yeah, when, when uh, uh, what's her face goes? Ricky Lake goes. Ricky Lake. <laughs> I, I <laughs> goes in and starts dancing in the record store, and and you know they all start doing the bird. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. Oh no, I mean this all this music like this is right up John Waters' alley. Well, furthermore, the whole phrase "the bird's the word" was probably borrowed by the Rivingtons themselves as there had been a song called Thunderbird floating around for years at that point that used the same phrase. Hey, say, what's the word? That's so cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah, uh, that's I mean, fucking great. That's like the, <laughs> the theme music to hell. <laughs> fun hell. Yeah, fun hell. Yeah, it's the hell that we all want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's like if you think like, oh, hell's going to be a cool time, they'd be playing that. Yes, they yeah. would be playing yeah, that. that would, that's yeah, sure. that's off a great compilation called The Champs, Tequila, and Other Rockin' Bands. Yeah, so there's, yeah, Las Vegas Grind is also a real good compilation if you like music like that. There's all kinds of great shit out there, but yeah, it's... You can create your own hell <laughs> in your own living room. Now, what, tell us, what was Thunderbird? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Thunderbird was a cheap wine that apparently you drank. I have drank Thunderbird in the past, yeah. I'm not proud of it, but I have. Yeah, so that's, it came from the advertisement when they're like, what's the word? Thunderbird. <laughs> How much it cost? 30 twice. <laughs> it's, and it's just like very, very cheap wine. Yeah, that's that's really all it is. It's insanely cheap wine. And somehow they got James Mason <laughs> to do a commercial for Thunderbird wine. Let's just hear it. I like the unusual flavor of Thunderbird wine. It's an exceptionally good drink for every occasion. Thunderbird has an unusual flavor all its own. Not quite like anything I've ever tasted. I suggest that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. It has such an unusual taste. Oh God, it's so unusual. It's James Mason. That's coming from James Mason. Who's always like two drinks away from passing out. It's the most unusual thing I've ever tasted. And that's the thing. That's the crazy thing and how it all starts. It starts with a... A, a wine, a cheap wine that some bootleggers decided to sell to the ghettos. <laughs> yeah. And then it ends up being in an advertisement. And then, uh, you, know, you know, the Rivingtons start start talking about birds. And then, <laughs> and the next thing you know, the garage band uh, puts it together. And then we have punk rock. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a lot of random things that kind of get us there. And it's amazing. It's all chaos. Now, even though Papa Oom Mau Mau and the Birds of the Word were minor hits... They weren't big enough to make it to Minnesota, which meant that the Trashmen had never even heard of the Rivingtons. Instead, they assumed that the medley was an original by the Sorensen brothers, which really isn't all that better from stealing it, stealing it from the Rivingtons. They still like took the arrangement that someone else did uh, and adapted it. That's true. But even so, the Trashmen still got to work on their own version. Yeah, because, you know, Steve loved what they were doing, like the, the Sorensen brothers. Uh, and actually, s some people said, I think some of the Sorensen brothers did say, like, the Trashmen asked us to teach it to them. Yeah. 
but the trashman never mentioned that in any in any interview whatsoever. Ah. They did say one of them did say that they at, they told him like that's a good song. Why don't you guys record your song? And they said no. Huh. I don't know. There's a lot of accounts of different things and. and Fuzzy memories. Yeah, a lot of fuzzy, fuzzy memories. Memory. Yeah, because we're talking about guys. It, it, it's not like they were doing a lot of drugs or drinking or anything like that. It just happened 60 years ago. It was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so at the next Trashman gig, uh, they're all sitting in the dressing room backstage, you know, about to go on at, at this ballroom show. When Steve started messing around, because he would always mess around and do weird voices, and he started singing, like, Bird is the Word song. But he, he came up with this funny voice, like this kind of voice that made everyone laugh. And the more he did it, the more they laughed. So he kept going. And then he realized, oh, this is great. I have a plan. I'm going to sing this song on the show that, yes, we're about to go on in a few minutes. Yes, I'm going to sing this song, and we're going to do three chords. We're going to do E, B, A. And I'll shake my head whenever I want you to change the chords. So they're like, all right, hope this is a good idea. <laughs> so they went up, and Steve did the bird song. And stopped in the middle, and he just did the... Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) And he went back to the song, back to the bird is the word song. Yeah. (laughs) And, I mean, they added that to their next gig, but the crowd loved it. They loved every... They went crazy. They played it four times that night. Yeah. It is that thing you do. Well, that's what one of the members said about, like, the formation of the group. They said it's, you know, guys coming in, guys going out, you know, trying to find the right. Like, it's that thing you do. He's like, that's that movie was actually very accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then this local radio DJ, Bill Deal, he ran to the dressing room where the guys were and said, this song is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. You should record that song. Yeah. It's a hit. What's it called? Um... Bird? Uh, <laughs> uh, it's surf music. So like what? Like, oh, surfer bird? And Bill's like, no, no, that's no good. There's no action. You need action. We're going to give it some action. Uh, call it surfing bird. Yeah. And that's how it was born. Yep. Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we had you wait a week for. Yeah. <laughs> a guy yelling at a bunch of teenagers about how you got to give it some action. <laughs> but, I mean, really, the trash men, like, the reason why they really wanted to record is because if they had a record, then their booking prices for live shows would go up. So they went and recorded a demo of Surfing Bird in the basement of a record store called Nickel Lake Records, owned by a seedy backstabber named George Garrett. Yes, actually. <laughs> a huge piece of shit. Yeah, he was a sleazeball. Yeah. I mean, like, even the nicest things that people say about him, they say things like, interesting character. <laughs> or, you know, he was a hustler. Yeah. I mean, he hustled a lot. The only, anytime someone had anything nice to say, they always prefaced it with, now he always treated me real well. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so George Garrett, he owned the record store. And in the basement, he had the record, the recording studio that this guy, Ronnie Brown, was in charge of. Like, he ran the, the studio for him and everything while George was upstairs. So after a few hours of recording with the Trashman, Ronnie went back upstairs and found George. George was like, how was it? Like, have, have they got anything? And Ronnie said, oh, you know, same stuff. Same, <laughs> same old stuff. Same bullshit. And it wasn't just him. Like, R- Bob Reed, the bassist of the Trashman, wasn't into it either. Yeah. Like, he thought, like, it's like, this is too much of a gimmick, you know? Uh, but I'm also new here, so I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> now, after they recorded Surf and Bird, they got on the radio. And after Surf and Bird was on the radio, 
a man named Amos Heilicker, sometimes called the godfather of the Minnesota record business. Hey, don't sneeze at the too much. There's been some fucking great bands out of Minnesota. No, I mean, his name is so funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, shit, you got replacements. You got Prince. You got Husker Du. There's a lot of fucking great bands out of Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. But Amos Heilicker began getting requests at his store for Surfing Bird, and he called up George Garrett to ask if he knew these trash men. And without missing a beat, George Garrett said, oh, yeah, yeah, I manage them. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my group. I manage them. Yeah, so that's what he told the trash men. Uh -huh. He's like, I'm going to be your manager. Well, the problem that they had, the Trashman had, is that George Garrett had a stipulation with his recording studio that if you recorded something in his studio, then he owned half of it. Yeah. Uh, which was a bad deal. Yeah, I know. Like, and there are people around him that were like, we know George Garrett. George Garrett is a sleazy guy. He's the kind of guy where he would buy used albums and rewrap them in cellophane and sell them as new in his record store. He's the kind of guy that there is actually nothing about him before the 1960s. <laughs> like, there is nothing. Yeah, like, he just showed up. Yeah, he just showed up in fucking Minneapolis and said, I do records now. Yes. Yeah, no so, one knows. They kept warning <laughs> But, you know, the Trashmen, they were like, all right, you know what? We're kids. What do we know? Uh, we don't have any money. We're going to sign with this guy. And then we'll, we'll, try to, we'll try to move it to the majors. You know, we'll, 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 we'll figure it out from then on there, you know. But George was not really the, actually a manager other than like in name, I guess. Like, yeah, in, in name and percentage. Exactly. He would just get a cut. He didn't really care about their day-to-day, -day, their, their gigs, or, any, or anything about that at all. Just numbers. And so when the Trashmen went to record their song again, this time they went to the nicer K Bank Studios, which was a little bit more expensive. George refused to pay for it. Yeah, he refused to pay for it because they had taken it to the radio station. After the radio station had played a little bit, they're like, ah, you can do better than this. Take it because it was the original version of Surfing Bird is like five minutes long. And he told them, like, take it down to two and a half minutes and then you'll have a hit. And they did. Uh, but George refused to pony up any money at all. The guys were, I mean, he was just a fucking leech and a drain. And yeah. it would eventually kill them. Dal had to borrow $280 from his parents. Oh. I know. <laughs> I mean, he paid it back. <laughs> Can you imagine him fucking asking? He's like, yeah, it's the song about like a bird. And, you know, they think there'll be a big hit. If you just give me $300, then, you know, yeah, I'll pay you back. It's a song about a bird, Dad. <laughs> All right, son. I'm crying. <laughs> so, so they recorded it. And, like, and it actually, like, it's, it sounded much better this time, you know. And even, like, the, uh, the effect on when uh, Steve is gasping in the, that little interlude part, mm -hmm. the recording engineer used a pencil on the, rec on the recorded tape and just wiggled it to, got, to give it that, like, wavering voice effect, yeah. which was really cool because they recorded everything pretty much live. Uh, the whole song with no reverb so the you know the recording engineers had to go in and like kind of fix it up a little bit it, it sounded perfect sounds perfect as far as the b-sides of the single went they enlisted the skills of a fellow musician and songwriter named larry lapole now larry was skeptical of the trash men because when they played him surfing bird for the first time he said quote that's the worst goddamn thing i've ever heard in my whole life so can you write us a song <laughs> for the B-side of the worst song Larry has ever heard in his life? Sure. 
<laughs> We're going to change it to the worst song Larry has ever heard in his life. Oh, too long, too long. Okay, let's go back to Surfing Bird. Okay. So, yes, he, they had their friend Larry. They're like, you have two days to write a song. Okay, just write us a really good B-side song. It's got to be a surf song. And Larry's like, I've never left Minneapolis. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't know anything about surfing. So since Larry also worked at the Tribune newspaper, he picked up an article written about surfing with all the surfing terms. Ah. Because the Beach Boys were coming, so they're like, oh... Hang 10. Here's yeah. some surfing terms for you. <laughs> <laughs> like like heavies and cruncher and grammy and wipeout. Yeah. So he took all those terms, he copied them down, and mm. just wrote King of the Surf. Yeah, it was just a bunch. Of, he just took a bunch of bullshit and put it together. And it's a pretty good song. It's a great song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it out. Taking my woody and I'm heading on down Where the cool, cool surfers all gather round Got a brand new board and I'm ready to fly I'll be shooting the girl before the sun is high Show those old dads, Grammys, heroes too The kind of high-riding real surfers do Well, I'm a high-riding surfer and it takes Three punchers and a heavy to wake me up I can do a double spinner before you count to three Oh, king of the surfers Yeah, just throw a bunch of bullshit in there. No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear? It takes like what three crunchers and a the a, a Grammy, a heavy to wipe out. Yeah, you can do the spinner before you count to three. Twice. Twice. <laughs> yeah, and he also Larry Lapole also wrote that song. He said he got as close as he could to the riff for Johnny B. Good without getting sued. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Now, Surfing Bird was a local hit pretty much immediately, and the single very quickly made its way to Capitol Records in L.A. But without even talking to the band, George Garrett sold their contract to Soma Records, the Minnesota local. Yeah, Soma being Amos Highlicker back, you know, Amos, his name backwards, so it's Soma Records. Everyone's getting their greases, their palms greased, everybody. Yeah, so yeah, George sold their contract to Soma Records. I mean, even though Capital was interested, all the major companies like Columbia, RCA, Liberty, they all wanted to sign the band or they were at least interested in the band. But George went up to them and said, I sold your contracts to Soma Records. Uh, Sorry. It's like <laughs> it's like if you got accepted to like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, but instead, how about Murray's House of Learning? <laughs> like Gilmer, Go to Gudger College. <laughs> so the guys just looked at each other and they were like, "Oh fuck!" Yeah, we got screwed. The one thing everyone told us not to do. We had one job. Yep, and fucked it up. Well, because of this deal with a smaller local label, the Minnesota record plant could barely keep up with the demand, especially after 38,000 copies sold in the first week. And I don't know if this is true, but it was rumored that workers went out to the street to collect asphalt to press more 45s. I don't know if that's true. Maybe, but I think records are made from vinyl, which is not the same substance as asphalt. I'm not sure. (laughs) Maybe, maybe they had they some had to, sort of, This maybe, is a weird gravelly one I got. <laughs> maybe they had a big like Willy Wonka converter machine. Like you just throw asphalt in, vinyl comes out. Yeah. <laughs> but just as the trash men were starting to take off, forces out of their control knocked them down. Because Surfing Bird was released on November 13th, 
1963. We all know what happened that year on November 22nd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> November was that? 1963. And, yeah, the... Uh, the the, the assassination of JFK yeah. happened, and the the guys, they were all, I mean, of course they were upset of what happened, but they were also like, what does this mean for single? Yeah. You know, I mean, and then they, they realized, like, oh, we're kind of being a little selfish here. We, <laughs> come on, guys, like, keep it together, keep it together. And then I'm sure someone like like Tony was like, but he almost sent me to Vietnam. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I mean, mean it, it was just a, it happens, the, man. I mean, the country Wil- was in mourning. It happened. I mean, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, uh, Wil- Wilco's best album, uh, that was released on September eleventh, two thousand one. Like, yeah, this shit happens. This shit happens. But as it turned out, the teenagers of America didn't want to mope for too long about Kennedy getting killed. They were sad at first, and then they wanted to get over it pretty fast. Jesus, <laughs> the teenagers. The fuck do they know? And the rest of the songs on the charts at that time were wonderful. There's a, there were some great songs on the charts, but they were still kind of sedate. They didn't give you any energy. Like, for example, this one. I fucking love this song, but it's very sleepy. It's by the Mermaids. It's called Popsicles and Icicles. <laughs> It's pretty much a retread of sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows everywhere. You know, it's the same. It's the same kind of song. It's the hell's c- counterpart. In heaven. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. If you're hearing Thunderbird in hell, you're hearing popsicles and icicles in heaven. It's wonderful. <laughs> Leslie Gore's up there. Hop hop hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two Faced. Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But since Surfing Bird was just about the only upbeat new record out, the assassination of the president actually helped their career. What? Once people started buying records again. Because they wanted something with energy. They wanted something that was going to make them like, feel good and alive. And so Surfing Bird climbed up the charts even further. After that, Surfing Bird started going national. And in January of 1964, the Trashmen were invited to quote-unquote perform the song on American Bandstand with Dick Clark. Although only one Trashman actually showed up. 
Well, all the trash men wanted to go. They wanted to go, yeah. But American Bandstand, they, they, they were filming it in Philadelphia. They were about to make their move to L.A. They didn't want to spend extra money. So they're like, no, we're only going to pay for one of you guys to fly all the way here. Oh, yeah, no hotel, by the way. You got to fly back that night. Ugh. So that's what and they of, did. They, and, of course, George Garrett's not paying for that shit. No. And Soma Records isn't paying for that shit. If they were on Capitol, then, yeah, the whole fucking band would have gone. But yes. because they're dealing with these small timers, it just didn't fucking happen. I don't understand. You don't, want, you don't want your band to be on national TV? That's insane. Well, they figured as long as the song gets played and as long as one of them are there, that's good enough. <laughs> okay. We can save the $150 that a fucking plane ticket probably cost back then. <laughs> So Steve had to fly in by himself, and he had to do the song. And he went and he he did the song. Well, he lip-synced the song, like everyone uh, did on TV back then. And well, it's just it's just him. I mean, he, remember he's a drummer. He's a drummer vocalist. So he's just standing there and just kind of like moving around and almost flapping his wings just a little bit. And then there's like this mechanical kind of like toucan. Yeah, like this kind of bird like like a fruit loops bird it's not even mechanical it's just a model and the the eye blinks on and off yeah and they go between (laughs) steve were dancing around doing his best like trying to match the manic energy of the song and he's doing some wing flaps and all that and he's kind of bent over because he's i don't know it's he's given it everything he's fucking got and then it keeps panning back to this fucking flashing light bird yes yeah the whole time it, it was just him like trying to figure out like I don't know what I'm doing. Like, and but I mean, he's. I guess he's kind of glad he went. And the other trash men were totally not envious of that whatsoever. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, we're glad you went at least." And uh, hey, you know what? It was it was a good effort. Oh, what? Every time someone ever Google's your or our names, <laughs> that pops up number one forever. Yep. All right. Well, I mean, they didn't know what the fuck to do with the trashmen because it was such a different energy. I mean, if Frankie Valley's showing up. By himself, that's fine because Frankie Valley can just he can lip sync and you know you do the sweep of the hand and look out at the audience and it's all fine. But when it's <laughs> like it's such a I mean it's a manic intense energy and just one guy up on stage like it becomes a whole different kind of performance. But all of the trash men were destined for the number one spot on the chart. They were going to fucking hit it. Like, they knew it. It was within sight. It It was almost there. Like, it was like, yeah, next week you guys are going to hit number one. Guaranteed. Next week, I want to hold your hand. (laughs) The Beatles. They fucking (laughs) came in and erased surf rock. You could just hear them just just getting off the plane. Like, (laughs) suck it. (laughs) Suck it. Just boom. Fuck you. (laughs) Oh yeah, I tell you something I think you'll understand When I say that something The Trashman's song came out in November 1963. Two months later, Bob Reed is like driving his car with the radio on and heard that song and just, yeah! <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding me? 
because the Beatles showed up in January 1964. They had a number one hit right off the bat. Got invited to perform on the Ed Sullivan Show a few weeks later, and and the rest is history. Yeah, I mean th- that year the Beatles they were going five for five on the charts. Like they they would had the top five songs on the charts at different times in the 60s. Like they yeah. just they took over the whole fucking I mean they took over it can't I mean that's it, there's a name for it it's called the British Invasion yeah. like, <laughs> like it erased everything in American music yeah but maybe for the better I mean the, that's the thing too the Trashman also said they're really good <laughs> well, they're, what? and they, you know I agree they're very good yeah, yes that, that's <laughs> we once again must say the Beatles are very, very good, good. Yeah. <laughs> make a t-shirt <laughs> Yeah, make a t-shirt just as the Beatles are very good. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, it sucks for the trash men. You know, the Beatles changed absolutely everything, and it was right as the trash men were about to fucking get there. And then the fucking Beatles came in and started talking shit about the trash men. That's true. They they interviewed the Beatles, and they asked him, like, hey, what do you think about the trash men? And Ringo Starr, what did he say? Don't care for them. <laughs> it was just so bored and annoyed and just like oh yes then yes we i uh, remember we didn't we slaughter them last year aren't they dead now yeah it was a, and the thing is that the trash men were also like their guitars don't sound very good they need to get better guitars yeah like, it's just a fad right <laughs> by august the beatles had sold over 80 million records worldwide yeah yeah, oh, that's it. That's it. That's, that's the it. Beatles. The Beatles fucking slit their. The Beatles came in and slit their fucking throats. Yeah, well, but it's yeah, all fair. It's a, it's all. Hey, that's the way it goes, man. That's how that's how chaotic all this shit was. Is that a band could come in from another country and destroy everything in a week? But the Trashmen were still popular enough to tour. It's not like Surf and Bird just went away. But their touring stories surprisingly involve a lot more guns than we're used to, and a lot more guns than I expected from the Trash Men. Yeah, they always had guns. <laughs> Every single member had a three fifty seven on them at all times. Yes, because they were also paid in cash at every show. So they would get these bills in like fives and tens and ones. So what they would do is like they would keep all the money in like a suitcase and sometimes put it like right there on stage with them, like right behind. So yep. that way they, they're they always looking at it while they're playing. <laughs> yeah, most of the time it was put right by the drummer. Yeah, I mean... And they, he put the set list on it so he could always look down and make sure that it was still there. Exactly, because... Since they toured a lot, uh, they they did 292 dates in 1964 alone. They rarely had any time to wire the money back home. So, yeah, they all had their guns. They were all ready just in case because actually one time uh, another car while they were driving kind of tried to run them off the road and they were were about to go rob them. But the guys all pulled out their guns. (laughs) These nice Midwestern guys (laughs) pull out their guns. And the robbers were just like... Never mind. And just kind of just hightailed it out of there. Yeah. So these things would happen. Like, and sometimes they would even get into fights. Yeah. And like sometimes the guns got them in trouble with the fucking cops. Like one time they were at this hotel and they had all of their cash out on the bed in the hotel room. They had all their guns on the counter and the hotel maid comes in. They're just like, hey, how you doing? Like, like yeah, come on in. Just, you know, you can. You can take care of all the <laughs> the covers and all that. Let me get all these guns and money out of the way. Uh, and, and she, she slowly backs <laughs> out of the room and closes the door. She wouldn't call the cops because she thought they were bank robbers. Yeah. And then- <laughs> 
<laughs> and then the cops came and made them uh, fucking go and deposit all the money. He, they made them go and wire all the money back to Minnesota. They're like, it's not safe for you to be walking around with thousands of dollars in cash. They're like, that's why we have these. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only way they, the only reason why they didn't get arrested was because one of the cops had worked security at the show the night before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> But the trash men actually had a lot more to worry about than just highway robbery and the Beatles. Pretty soon after Surfin' Bird hit the charts, the Rivingtons heard it, lawyered up, and demanded sole credit for the trash men's hit. Yeah, because when George put out the record, he listed Steve as the composer yeah. of the song. So George gets a call from the Rivington's lawyer saying, like, why are the trash men getting credit for two songs that my clients wrote? And George was like, Oh, so you guys aren't the Sorensen brothers. <laughs> Sorensen. Damn it. <laughs> and as you said before, the band members said that they never heard of the Rivingtons or, or, or their song before. So they only thought it was the Sorensen brothers. Yeah. So George settled by just giving the Rivingtons sole writer's credit for the song. He gave them everything. Yeah, well, the guys thought they deserved at least partial credit for the song because they changed it around a lot and things like that. But, I mean, I guess it's like, I don't know if that's exactly how it works now. Like, I mean, it is sampling. So maybe the Rivingtons do, they definitely deserve credit for oh, sure. Oh, I absolutely agree that the Rivingtons definitely deserve like partial credit. You know, it's the it's the melodies kind of the same. You know, the of course, the lyrics, everybody's heard about the bird, birds, the word, and Papa Umau Mau, like... But the Trashmen put their own spin on it, you know, like they they did they kind of did their own thing. It was kind of a, I guess you could call it a, a collage of you know the Rivingtons yeah. hits. Uh, and also they didn't know they had that, no idea. <laughs> like they had no they had no fucking clue. But you know, music copyright law is very uh, uh, what how how would you put it? Uh, it's very complicated. Yeah. It's extremely complicated. Uh, and so, but George Garrett, like he could have fought and gotten the ribbing and, and gotten the trashman partial too credit. Expensive. It's too expensive. Cause that's the thing is that, you know, George Garrett was looking at, at the trashman and looking at surfing birds like, Oh, I'm going to make money on this for the next few months. Uh, I've already made my money on this, you know, like yeah. it sold a whole bunch of copies. Uh, so who cares? No one's going to listen to this song after, you know, 1965. Anyway, the Beatles have already destroyed these guys. No one's going to listen to surfing bird ever again. So yeah, fuck it. I'm not going to spend money on a lawyer take whatever and that ended up screwing over the trash men for a long time yeah a long time I, I think it was like 1983 they finally got like their master tapes and their their at least their you know their their rights to their song yeah I guess you could say so it kind of worked out kind of yeah ironically though after the suit was settled the trash men tried to do the same thing the Rivingtons had tried years before with Papa Oo Mau Mau and Mama Oo Pow Pow Perhaps in an attempt to recapture some royalties, the Trashmen released Bird Dance Beat in 1964. Ladies and gentlemen, the new single from Nirvana looks like Teen Spirit. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, smells like Teen Spirit work. So let's do looks like Teen Spirit next, oh, and then yeah, and then yeah, we'll yeah. do sounds like Teen Spirit. Ooh, taste <laughs> like Teen Spirit. We'll do a whole medley, and it'll work great. It's so weird how they used to do that. It was like, well, yeah, we had a hit, so let's just do the same keep thing going. again, and it's just fucking keep going. That's not, actually that song sounds a lot more like the Beach Boys, you know? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the Beach Boys were very big back then, but yep. then again, I mean, we can't really rag on them too much. I mean, the Ramones kind of kind of took a uh, page yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah except they did it with an entire career yes <laughs> well the year after that the trashmen released another version of surf and bird called bird 65 which i actually think is pretty damn good mostly because of the fuzzy guitar that reminds me of the tone brian gregory used during his time in the cramps Again, it's the same song. It's the same song. <laughs> I, I think you, I mean, I think we're all about to get our fill, but that's good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Now, of course, the Trashmen, they recorded a hell of a lot of music besides just bird-themed material. I mean, there's a like a four-CD set, uh, yeah. about like a four-disc set uh, about just the Trashmen's entire fucking career, and a lot of it's really fucking good. Uh, and, you know, they also tried doing other covers. They tried doing... A version of Chuck Berry's Rollover Beethoven. They recorded it. They're like, this is fucking great. And then the Beatles. Again. <laughs> we meet again. <laughs> the Beatles released their version of Rollover Beethoven. Like, and it was the a Beatles huge version hit. is better. I've heard both. The, yeah. The, you know what? I like the Trashman version. Cool. Maybe I'm just being a little contrarian here. I yeah. think I am. But I I kind of like, I, I think the, the Trashman version has a little bit more uh, oomph to it. Ooh, I, I like this side of you. <laughs> Antagonist. <laughs> so by 1967, most of the Trashmen had reached their limit with the music business. And the original lineup called it quits that summer. That's a pretty good run. Six years for a band. Yeah, that's pretty good. The only member who stuck it out was Steve Warrer, the lead singer and drummer. Although the other Trashmen think this led Steve to an early grave. Yeah, Steve... Asked if like, hey, can I just keep going with a different band and we can call it the new Trashmen? And the guys were like, yeah, be my guest. We're done here. <laughs> but unfortunately, that didn't last too long. Or as Tony put it, it lasted about 10 minutes. Yeah. So, but you know what? Later on in the 80s, they, they got together a little bit. They played a little bit until Steve, unfortunately, he died of throat cancer in 1989 at the age of 47. Oh, young. Yeah, but luckily, it wasn't until much later when they reunited and started playing again because those all those reissues and stuff they came out in the 90s and so they started touring Europe and making good money and they, they did that like what 2007 it wasn't that that long ago man I had the opportunity to see the trash men and I didn't take it yeah you didn't take it <laughs> they, they also played around in the US with uh, Deke Dickerson actually I don't know Deke Dickerson oh he, he's a guitarist I think he was friends with the cramps too oh. yeah yeah uh, and he was a very big fan 
uh, of the Trashmen, of course. So they they played together, they recorded some more, and then finally the Trashmen uh, they hung their instruments, if you can hang them, <laughs> uh, and <laughs> retired can. in 2015. Well, speaking of the Cramps, you know, of course, Surfing Bird was resurrected by the Ramones and the Cramps just 14 years after the original release, which to me is it's weird to think about it because it seems like four decades separate the Trashmen from New York punk. Uh, it was less than two. It was 14 fucking years. And when it comes to the appeal of Surf and Bird and how it hits different parts of the brain for different people, consider that the song was featured in both E.T. and Full Metal Jacket, just five years apart. Two movies that could not be more different. Yes. <laughs> and yet it was used effectively in both of those movies. And, you know, there was the Family Guy episode. And there all was that. a Family yeah, Guy yeah, episode. It was, yeah. Oh, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, yes, it got... It, the joke gets old, but that's the Family but Guy But that's Family style. Guy. The yeah. joke gets old. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Weird Al Yankovic actually wrote a little thing. Yeah. Can I read it? Of course. All right. <clears throat> this is about the Trashmen, by the way. Yeah. Okay, okay sorry. <laughs> Whenever I write a song, whether it's a heart wrenching love ballad or a food-based song parody, I always take a moment to contemplate, what would the Trashman do? True, I could never deceive myself into thinking that I could match their genius or their gravitas, but artists need something to strive for, a beacon of perfection to guide their way, by equating the bird with the word loudly <laughs> and repeatedly. The Trashman proved conclusively why they deserve to be immortalized in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Although, let's face it, they never will be. No stinging chance. No. Weird Al Yankovic. Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. That's great. No, that's it's, great. I mean, that's the thing. If the only thing Surf and Bird led to was Weird Al Yankovic, I'm fucking fine with I'm, that. I'm down with that. <laughs> It's giving me so much happiness over the years. And then garage bands uh, make it big for a while. Iggy Pop is really into it. He's a part of that. And then next thing you know, boom, we have uh, all this. Yeah. <laughs> all this punk music. Yeah. And besides just being a great song that inspired a lot of other great songs, I mean, Surfing Bird shows that the evolution of rock was by no means a simple or straightforward process. Instead, it was messy and unfair. And while that chaos resulted in fantastic music that makes all of us happy on a daily basis, the stress it put on the people in the trenches could sometimes be fatal, as it was for Steve Warrer. May he rest in peace. I wonder if there's any mention of it on his gravestone. I don't know. The bird is the word? <laughs> is that appropriate? Is that, is that? Can we do that? Yeah, put a bird on the tombstone. Why not? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, so that that you know everything. Yeah, now you know you everything. You know as much as we do. You know everything about. We talked about Surfing Bird for an hour and twenty minutes. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you everyone uh, for listening. Thank you so much. And that's the thing is that we said that hey, yeah, we're gonna do this episode on Surfing Bird next week because you know we kind of need a little bit of a break before we get to the Dead Kennedys. And the thing is, we spent the whole fucking week on Surfing Bird. <laughs> we still worked our asses off on Surfing Bird because we can't help it. We can't help ourselves because we did the same thing with the Sid and Nancy episode. It was like, oh, yeah, we'll just do a Sid and Nancy thing. Oh, yeah. and it'll be it'll be easy. It'll We're going to solve a murder from 40 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Tonight. So we did the same thing with this where we said, like, oh, yeah, we're just going to do Surf and Bird and it'll be fine and simple. And we'll per put, you know, an hour into it and then, you know, we'll record. It'll be fine. No. 
put in a whole fucking week on Surf <laughs> yes. and Bird. I know. We, we can't help so it. Much stuff. That's the thing. I know you were almost mad at me when I found that book. Because <laughs> like, we like, wanted to cheat a little bit and, and, and just like play the song and just talk about it. Like, hey, let's just let's just bullshit and gab for like 20 minutes and then we'll put it out and then we'll we'll, we'll laugh all the way to the bank. <laughs> no, actually, no. No. So uh, thank you all for being patient uh, while waiting uh, for quality content because it takes time yes quality content takes time uh and uh we're only human (laughs) we need to live we need to live our life (laughs) (laughs) all right well thank you everyone uh for listening uh we'll be back with another band uh next week uh we'll we'll fucking keep doing the bands keep doing the no dogs bands uh every single week uh so thank you all very much for listening and, and enjoy yeah let's Listen to a little bit of Surfing Bird to take us out okay. one more time. Just in case you weren't <laughs> sick of it. I know you wanted to hear it again. Yeah, one last time. Uh, just take us out. Take us out. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. Hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.